All right, good morning. Welcome to everybody here that's at our main campus. Thanks for you guys that are joining us online. So real quick, uh, quick announcements. On your way out, you're going to be getting one of these, uh, we call them our Easter cards. And so we want you to use them in a couple different ways. One is it's going to tell you on the back what's going to be going on leading up to Easter. And so we've always said like that whole prep process leading up to Easter we think is a really important part about the celebration of Easter. I think too many times we're like, oh, Easter's coming, you know, really prepare ourselves to get ready for it. And so we come and we're like, hey, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you know, amen. And we kind of just leave it at that. So a couple different opportunities that you have. So Journey to the Cross, so that will be in one of our conference rooms that has the dates on here when you can do that. Uh, So you can come in throughout the day anytime you want. And again, that's just this opportunity for you to walk just like Jesus on the journey to the cross to prepare your heart. Um, Good Friday, so if you've never been to a Good Friday service here at Life Church, you need to come uh, for multiple different reasons. It's amazing to be together on that day, and we've always told people, like, you can't truly experience the true fullness of what the resurrection is until you sat in the death, right? Like, this whole idea that Remember that these disciples had all the hopes in the world and they were completely dashed. Like we have to remember, they were sitting at a place where they didn't know the end of the story, right? They were sitting in a place where this is all over, all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of everything that we planned for. We walked away from our jobs. We walked away from everything. And now what, right? What are we supposed to do? So we come together on Good Friday to sit in that place, right? So that when it comes, Resurrection Sunday, hey, we're all excited, right? Like, seriously, all of our hopes and dreams revived again by a living, breathing Savior, right? And so also we say, like, Eve Eve and Easter are the opportunities where more people in this community are open to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just reality, right? People who haven't been uh, coming to church in the past or have been away from church for a while will always get to Easter and Christmas and say, hmm, maybe I should do something, you know? And so it's an opportunity to use this card to invite them to be a part of the process, to be able to come on Easter Sunday. So you can use these to uh, invite people to be able to come because unapologetically on you know, obviously Easter, I mean, we're preaching the gospel. I mean, Jesus Christ risen from the dead, and we're expecting that lives will be changed, you know, and people will be touched. And so we're praying for those opportunities to speak into the lives of those people. All right, so let's go on with Revelation. So we're studying the book of Revelation. Go ahead, if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 4. We're going to jump right into it today, but I want to give you a little bit of the transition. So not so much of the recap, but more of the transition of What's happening? Because in the last eight weeks, this is what we've been doing. We've been studying the what would be considered the now, right? So it was things that were happening. Letters being written to churches that then were being distributed to these churches. Like it was happening at the time. They would write them, then they would go out and they would distribute them to the people, right? So that was happening then. Now we're getting to a place where everything that we talk about now is everything about the future, Right now, this is the normal place where everybody quits reading Revelation, right? For a couple different reasons. So you can read the letters, you know, and you can it's kind of relatable, right? Like you read it, you know, you process it, and it's kind of like, oh, this could be like my church, or this could be like me, and these are some real things that are happening, and so I can read through it, I can understand it, and then you get to Revelations four, and you start reading it, and all of a sudden, here's what you see: angels with eyes all over their body and six wings, and you know these. angels that have heads and they're different kinds of heads and what are these heads supposed to mean and then there's all of this symbolism right and people read through it all and they'll be like I have no idea what this means I'm just going to quit reading it right so one of the things that I want you to get prepared to prepared for is how to read what we're or how to study what we're getting ready to study if you understand a few things about it then I think we can get to a place where we can learn together right so Here's the first thing. So when we're doing this, I always teach this way. I will teach you symbolism. Like you're going to see the symbolism. We're not going to just skip over it. So I'm going to tell you like this is what the symbolism is. This is what it means. And when I say this is what it means, just so you know, inside of the symbolism of Revelation, there are some times where there's some disagreement, right, of what the symbolism actually means. But what I will do is take the overarching theory that tends to match with the most theologians, 
right? So I'll take a look at what everybody believes and what most people believe. We'll land on that. And again, um, we, we'll go from that place. And so we'll explain it, but we don't want to get so caught up in it that you miss the main point. So I'll always be saying like, here's the main point. Here's what they're trying to teach. Here's the thing that you need to know. Here's the symbolism that goes with it. But at the end of the day, don't miss the main point. Okay. Does that make sense? So when we're reading it, don't get too caught up in it. It's fun to study and it's fun to understand, but you can get lost in the midst of things with eyes all over it, all right? And you can tend to get lost in some of the weirdness of what people say whenever they read Revelation. Here's the other thing. Why read about something that will probably never happen to you? Because everybody has different theories on this, right? So mo most people would agree that the church is raptured before tribulation. Right? Some people do, some people don't. Most people believe that the church is raptured. Right? And again, that's not even the main point. The point is, is that this is all stuff that's going to happen in the future, and it's not really happening right now, and it's not something that we can learn from in the past. So why read about a future that might never happen to us? Right? Like, why go down those roads, and why is it important for us to be able to do it, be able to read it and understand it? Well, here's why. If you understand the future, it should change your present, right? Like if you know what the future is, so if somebody gave you a look into the future and you knew what the future was going to bring, I'm guessing that you would make decisions differently on what you did tomorrow, right, if you knew what was to come. So understanding the future or what is to come is not so that you can just understand, you know, this thing that's going to be out there, but understand it in a way to say, what does it mean to me? What do I need to do different today because I understand something that's coming up in history? So when we read it together, those will be some big points, right? Don't get caught up in the symbolism. You know, don't get lost. Try to figure out what the main points are. I'll point them out to you so when you go back and study, you'll understand them. To be able to understand, again, that we're looking at something futuristic, but what John always wrote about when he wrote these things wasn't just so you could understand the future, but so you could also understand how to apply it to the present. Does that make sense? Okay, so what we'll do is we'll read all the way through Revelation 4. So I'm going to read all the way through it, and then I'm going to sum it up for you. Here's the summary of what Revelation 4 looks like, and then we're going to go through it, and we're going to break it down piece by piece. Okay, all right, so go to Revelation 4, and we'll look at uh, starting in verse 1. So we'll read all the way through it, and then I'll sum it up for you. All right, so Revelation 4, starting in verse 1. It says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door. And so, again, just real quick, after this means it's the new start of the, the new part of Revelation. So before that was the letters, after this meaning the future now. So that's that separation between what was and what will be, okay? So that's after this, I looked, and before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first, uh, the voice I had first heard speaking to me was like a trumpet said, "Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this." At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, and was somebody sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder. In the front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These, all, these are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne was that uh, what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes. In front and in back, the first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face of a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, uh, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. 
they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our, uh, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for, your cre- for you created all things, and by you they were created and they have their being. So here's the summarization of Revelation 4. So he's giving this picture of what heaven will look like. Now, here's what's interesting is, is that there is somewhat of a fascination with what heaven will be. You know, like people wondering, like, what happens after a person dies and what will heaven look like? And we know that there's a fascination because anytime a book comes out that somebody went to heaven, it becomes a bestseller, right? Anybody ever read the books, like, right, 90 Minutes in Heaven or somebody went to Everybody's fascinated with these stories because somebody went somewhere and saw something that you want to see, right? And again, you might get upset about this, but, you know, I'm not going to say, when I say some of these things, I'm not discounting whether 90 minutes of heaven is true or not, you know, I have my own theory, you know, but, or people's stories of visiting heaven, whether they're true or not. I'm just going to tell you this, only five times in recorded scripture, okay, throughout all of history, only five times in recorded scripture was heaven talked about in that way, Okay. Three of them were through a vision, right? So Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah all had a vision of heaven, and they recorded it, right? Like, this is the vision we saw. This is what they wrote down. Paul, so then the other two were actually taken into heaven. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, was taken into the third heaven or taken into heaven and saw it all but was told he could not record any of it, right? So he couldn't write any of it down. The only other person that's been to heaven... And actually recorded it was John, right? John goes to heaven, sees the glory of heaven, right? And chooses to, or not chooses, is told to write it down. And this is what he sees. So here's all I'm saying. If you want to really understand heaven, we should probably go with what's recorded before what somebody else says. Does that make sense? Nothing wrong, read the books, go down the road, but I would assume, this is what I would assume, but I don't think it's true, that you would have more fascination which was written down in the Bible, recorded because a person went there, than another person, you know, inside of that. And the funny thing is, is that in every one of the five recorded instances, three dreams, two people who went there, Paul couldn't say this, but in, so in the other four, they all had the same response with what they saw, right? And I'll just give you a hint, you know, when we look at this, they're usually, in most of the stories, almost all the stories, the responses aren't the same, and what they see isn't the same. So you just have to ask yourself the question, if God's making a habit of bringing people to heaven, why don't they have the same story? Because in Scripture, they have the same story. Right? In Scripture, they go up there, and these are the things that they see. So what I want us to be able to do is when we go down through this and read it together in Revelation, I want us to walk away with two main points, right? Two main points I want us to, to settle inside of our hearts, and then we'll work through the symbolism part of it, okay? So big picture, here's heaven. If you understand what heaven looks like, how should it change the way you live today? Make sense? Big picture, right? All right, so let's go break it down and see what he talks about. Uh, inside of that. So Revelation, go back to verse 1. He says uh, in verse 1, after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I had first heard speaking to me was like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So think about this. Why would it be that when John gets called into heaven, right? Because he could have been taken anywhere in heaven, right? Are we on the same page? Like, he's called it, he could have been taken anywhere. Could have been taken to see all of his friends because think about John, all of his friends had died before him, right? So it could have been, Jesus would have been like, let me show you all of your friends that died before you and you can meet them and you can talk to them and you can, you know, see what they're doing. You know what I mean? Right, like, or you could go, let me show you the beauty of heaven. Let me show you the mountains and let me show you the grass and let me show you all of these things, and it could be so beautiful. Don't you think it's interesting that he takes him right into the throne room? 
like right into the throne room, and that the first person he meets isn't his brothers in Christ, but it's God on a throne, right? Like that's the first thing that he sees. And if you see all of these other accounts, other than obviously Paul couldn't write this down, but I'm assuming, all of the accounts are the same thing. When they're taken up there, they see the throne room, right? They see the throne room in the presence of God. So why? Why, first of all, did he say it? Why did he do that with John? Why was it so important that he understood the throne room before all else that's written down in Revelation, right? Because there's a point of all of this. That could have happened anywhere, right? Like him showing heaven could have happened anywhere in the writing of Revelation. So why in the beginning? Why was it important? And here's why. And here's what you're going to see. If you read the rest of Revelation, it seems like everything's out of control. Amen to anybody who's read it? Like, if you read the rest of Revelations, you're wondering what is in, this is the most complete chaotic thing ever, right, when you read about it. So what needed to be settled in John's heart so that he could record this properly, that in the midst of all of the chaos, God is still on the throne, period. In the midst of all of the things that you're getting ready to write about, because it's going to get weird, and there's going to be a lot of things happening, and a lot of people are going to be dying, and a lot of things are going to seem out of control, and everybody's going to be wondering, is there still a God who cares about this world because the destruction that's getting ready to happen is pretty intense? The people that are getting ready to die is pretty intense. The judgments that are coming onto the world are getting pretty intense. So, John, let's settle something. I am on the throne, and I am sovereign. And I am in control, and you need to know that, right? And you need to settle that in your heart, or the rest of this isn't going to make any sense to you. Because anybody that reads the rest of Revelations, we're sitting there like, <sighs> right? Like, is God really going to be in control? So you, got, you settle that. You need to settle that for John. But isn't it true the same thing needs to be settled for you? You know, in our hearts, in our minds, you know, we got to think through this. How important is it for you to understand? Because think about this for a second. If you walked into the throne room of God and you saw seated on that throne, God, the creator of the universe, the person that spoke things into existence, like spoke things into existence, Right? And you look at all of the beautiful things that you've ever experienced in the world, and, and you're thinking, he made all of this. And you're standing in his presence, right? After that, and when you see his power, and you see the way that he's governing the world through his power, and that he's in control and he's sovereign, what the world would you worry about? I mean, think about this. Like, if you're standing in the presence of God, and you see him on the throne, what is there to worry about? Because there's two things that can happen. One, you could die and go there, and it's a pretty cool place. Who doesn't want to go there? Right? I mean, think about this. If you stood in the presence of God, this is the funny thing about all the stories of people that go and see heaven and they come back. I'm like, once you stand in the presence of God, why would you come back? I mean, think about this. If you're standing in the presence of God and the majesty of God and the beauty of God and everything that's going there, be like, wow, I'll go pick this crappy world. It's way better. Nobody's doing that, right? Who's doing that? When they stood in the presence of God, it's like, I want to be here, right? Like, this is the place. And when they see the majesty of God, because then the other thing would just be happening, well, I'm not going to die, so I'm going to spend the rest of my life making sure my family and my friends get to this place. Like, it keeps you on mission when you understand that God's on the throne, right? When God's on the throne and he's in control, it redefines or solidifies or keeps us on mission. The worst thing that could happen to you, you're going to go there, which is awesome. And if I'm not there, I'm going to make sure everybody that I know is going to be there. So I'm going to spend the rest of my life on mission so that my family, my friends, and the people around me can see the majesty and the beauty of God. Now, here's the problem. That all sounds good, right? Like it all sounds good. God's on the throne and he's sovereign and he's in control. But do you know that we live a lot of our life as if he's not on the throne? Do you know what I mean? Like we live a lot of our life like we're on the throne. Pick it, right? Like you could pick it. Where have you put, taken him off and put you on? Is it your money? Is it your children? Is it your relationships? Is it like, just go through the list, right? Like, where is it that you've said, you know what, God? 
I know you're majestic, and I know you're all powerful, and I know that you're in control, and I know you spoke the word, you know, this into existence, but I can do this better than you. I can handle my money better. I can handle my kids better. I can handle relationships better. I can do, you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's what we're saying, right? When we take him off of the throne, which incredibly seems nuts, right, that we would ever do that. We, but we do, right? Like, we do those things. We just decide we're better than God, and we want to become God, and so we put ourselves on the throne, right? Which seems completely crazy that we would ever do that, but it's real. But we got to pray about that, right? Like, whatever those things that we've taken and came off the throne and put them on, we need to work through that because this is the main, one of the main points. Is he's saying to you, you better settle something in your heart. Who's on the throne? Because there is no like, well, can we share it? Anybody? Like half cheek, his half cheek, you know? <laughs> like can we sit on it together? Can we rule together? Can we do these things together? Because it's all about being together, right? Can we have these things? There ain't no doing it together. You're going to have to make a decision. He's either on the throne or he's off the throne. Make a decision. Right, like you got that's one of these main points that by showing him the throne room was to say, you are gonna have to make a point of who's in control, right? So, first, thinking that after you've seen the majesty of God that will move him off the throne is crazy. But you know what else is crazy? People get upset by the way God deals with people that have taken him off the throne, right? Because you know there's such a thing as discipline. Right, that, that God, like, hey, you're sitting on the throne, that's my seat, and, and I'm not going to gently take you off. Anybody that's been there, like, you've been sitting on that throne, and God's got his, ain't that's my seat, you know, and he's going to move you off, and people are like, I thought God was such a God of love, can't he just, like, pick me up and move me to just a little bit lower seat, but not be so... Like, that was tough going through that part of my life when I had to realize who's in control, right? But think of it this way, okay? Because we look at that and we're like, oh, I don't know, do you know what that looks like? But I think you miss the nature of God, just like we miss the nature of people. So we'll just use Troy and Keely because they're right here in the front. So let's just say Keely's at home, you know, and uh, Troy's out at work, and Troy gets home from a long day at work, and he sees Keely sitting around the table with another man. And Troy walks in, and he's like, hey, dude, <laughs> any reason you're sitting at the table with my wife? And he looks over at Troy, and he's like, well, the reason I'm here is because Keely was telling me that you don't know how to be a husband, so I'm here to replace you, because I can do it way better than you. Okay. Anybody that knows Troy? <laughs> what's going to happen to that man sitting at the table? There's going to be some blood, an ambulance. He ain't going to just sit there and say, oh, yeah, you're right. Let me go sit in my rocking chair, and you can just have my wife. Right. right. <laughs> and if that is happening inside of your relationship, you've got bigger problems, right? If it's just going to walk away. But you know why he does that? Because he loves his wife with a jealous love. There ain't no other woman that's going to take, no other man that's going to take that place. And I don't care who it is. That's a jealous love. Nobody's going to take my place. Amen, men? Like, nobody's taking my place. And if you try to take my place, somebody's getting bloodied. Somebody's going to the hospital. Somebody's getting moved on because this isn't the way. That's a natural jealous love. And we're wondering, like, I wonder why God's kicking me off the seat. This is so bad. I don't know. Why is he dealing with me in this way? Because he's a jealous God who loves you, who wants all of you, and who wants to sit on the throne. Don't be surprised when you choose to sit on the throne if you don't get your butt kicked off. Don't be surprised if he doesn't wake you up and move you off that place because a jealous God ain't sharing the throne with you. And whatever it takes to move you off into those places, those are the things that you need to be aware of because the, the big point of showing him the throne room in the beginning was you need to make a decision. Is he on the throne? Or is he not on the throne? And over time, he's going to work with you on this because if he's not, he's working his way back on. Be prepared. Because a jealous God is not sharing your attention.
right? A jealous God wants to sit in those places. So that's one of the main points. Now he goes on to, here's some of the symbolism, right? So he says, uh, on into verse 3, you know, after this, says that, and the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper, just want to make sure, yeah. So at, that one, uh, at the one who sat there had an appearance of Jasper and Ruby, a rainbow that shone like emerald encircled the throne. So this is back to the symbolism. So what's the symbolism? Jasper, you know, like a diamond reflecting the beauty of God. A red ruby that's like the judgment, right? That's the two different aspects of who we're talking about when who God is. There's beautiful reflection of who he is. And then, you know, in his love and his grace and his mercy. And then over here, there's this ruby that's representing judgments coming. Then what he does is I think this is a beautiful symbolization. Then what's, in, what's bringing those two things together? A rainbow. Because remember the covenant? What's the covenant of a rainbow? Mercy. Grace. Mercy. There was judgment, but it's not coming again like that. Right? So he brings this symbolism together that's really beautiful. Yes, God is a God of grace and mercy. And yes, God is a God of wrath. But the covenant that brings those two things together is the covenant that I made with my people. The rainbow that you see. And every time that you see it, you're, be, you're to be reminded of the covenant that God has with his people. Right? And that grace and mercy is brought together. Again, symbolism that he shows us in that. Then he goes on. And he says, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, this is the one, there's lots of different theories. What do the 24 uh, thrones represent? What are the 24 elders? Who are they? Are they angels? Are they the 12 tribes of Israel, Israel plus other people? Like, what is it really? So there's a lot of debate back and forth of what that is, but the over arching theological approach to all this would say based upon, you know, what is 24? Well, 24 is the number of completion in the Bible, right? So he's looking at it from a standpoint or people looking at it from a standpoint. Is it really just about the individual 24 thrones or is he showing something as a form of completion with using 24, right, in that? And the reason that it would say that is because on the 24 thrones are people that are clothed in white and wearing crowns, which would say this would be the coronated, raptured church, possibly, that had the completion, has the, 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 the mercy and are wearing the white robes, and they have at the end of every one of the letters that we read just a little while ago, and if you do all this, you will receive the victor's crown, right? So it's this, again, symbolization that's helping us get this picture of here is the church the people of God with their white clothes on and their crowns, and, and they're all doing something, right? You're going to be seeing this as we go. So symbolization, but it's giving you this picture of, again, the church and what it's, it's going to be doing. Then he gets to the place of verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing, they were seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass and clear that was clear as crystal. So again, this picture, jasper, you know, and rubies and rainbows, and now all of a sudden, it's lightning and thunder, right? So it's all of a sudden now, it's lightning and thunder. And in front of, you remember in the seven letters, if you were with us, one of the things you saw was there were the seven spirits and they had light, but now the light is blazing, Right, difference, right? The symbolism is difference. Before the seven spirits had a light, now the light is blazing. And what it's giving you a picture of is war is about ready to start. And the blazing light is, is that this is God's warring spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the seven, you know, that are going to go out and war on the world. And I know you don't want to hear that, but that's what is going to happen. There's going to be a war unleashed on the world during this time. Right, And so he's preparing you for, yes, grace, mercy, all these coming, but we're getting ready to see this. When we start unlocking the scroll, scrolls and you start reading through some of these things, war is coming. Right? And, and that's what he's trying to prepare you for. This blazing fire is coming. Right? So he, again, symbolism goes on. In the center around the throne, four living creatures, as they were covered with eyes in front and back, 
The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like the face of a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around them. Even under its wings, day and night, they never stopped saying. Okay, so here's the other symbolism. These are four angels around the throne of God. Okay, so it gives you a picture of what they look like. So why do they have eyes all over them? And here's why. They're all seeing, but not all knowing, right? Who's the only one who's all seeing and all knowing? God. But these angels are, the the eyes that are on them are all seeing, right? So that they can see everything that's going on, but they don't know everything that's going on, right? So that's a picture. And they also are a representation, right? So the representation are the different parts of God's creation, right? So in the beginning, there's a lion, the head of a lion, here's an angel, part of God's creation was wild animals, right? So the head of a lion on these angels standing around the throne of God. What was next is the head of an ox, right? So an ox was to represent created being domesticated animals, right? So the domesticated animals on the, the head on an angel. The next one, easy, the face of a man, right? So God's pinnacle of God's creation was mankind. And then the eagle was to represent the flying creatures, right? But here's the thing. So that's all cool, right? These are all God's created things, and they're all sitting around a throne, and they all have eyes, and they can all see. But what happens next is another main point. Because each thing that was up there, if you were looking at it from a distance, right? So if you're standing back, and you're looking at it from a distance, and you were looking at the angels, and you were looking at whatever those 24 people were, you know, we're saying that a representation of the raptured church. If you look at every single one of them, what is their response when they see a holy God in person, right? How do they respond, you know, when they see a holy God in person? Well, that's what it says next because the response is important. Not necessarily, you know, that it just represents all of these different creatures, but these creatures were doing something and this is what they were doing. This is what they were saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits in the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will uh, they were created and have their being. So, what did they do? Every single person that was in the presence of God, their ultimate response was worship, right? It wasn't like, oh, you know, I'm just going to go over here and do my own thing. If you're standing in the presence of God, the thing that you're going to do is worship that no one can be in the presence of God and not respond by now. Here's the part that I want us to think about. Are you in the presence of God today? Think about this for a second. Where two or three are gathered, he is, he's here, right? Like that's what he says. So the big question to me always comes up like this is, is that, so what do we need to learn from this? Because I think it's quite obvious that you looked at all of God's creation when they see his presence, worship. Sees the angels, worship. Anybody that stands, anybody that's walked into heaven isn't thinking about anything else other than worship, right? But how does that apply to us? And what does that mean to us when it comes to worship? Because I think for each one of us, when our response when God is present should be the same. Worship, right? And I'm not just talking about singing, obviously, right? Worship with your life and the things that you do. Now, here's the thing that I think you're going to be interested in, because this is the second point. So this is the second main point that he wants to deal with. So everybody in the presence of God worships him who, when you're in his presence. But the second point of it that I think we need to learn from is why is it then that we worship other things in the presence of God? Because that's what we're doing, right? I mean, when you think about this earth or you think about the things that are going on around here, we spend a significant amount of times worshiping other things other than him. Why? 
right? Like, why do we get to the place where we do worship those things? And I think it's interesting because if you think about this, now I'm going to say some things, maybe agree or disagree, it's okay. When I talked about in the beginning, remember when I said, like, hey, if you could have a chance to go to heaven, what would you want to see? And so here's what I want you to think about. Your answer to what you want to see first or what you want to do first usually a reflection of what you worship most on this earth. And I know that's harsh, right? But I want you to think about this for a second. The thing that you want to see most and or first is usually a representation of what you worship most and first. Because remember, he says anybody in the presence of God automatically worships, right? There's not a question of who deserves the worship, right? And part of that revealing, because I think it's hard sometimes, like I think it's hard at times to get to the place where we're like, wow, I worship other things more than I worship God, right? And also understanding this, because I know this is going to be difficult to hear, but it's not okay. It's not okay, Right? Like people that stand in the presence of God, worship God, no matter how hard that is to think of. And remember, I told you this story a long time ago. So right after Sherry died, this was the, I had this dream, right? And here was the dream. I'm like, but if we just see her again, if we could just get a hug again, you know, whatever that, right after you lose somebody, that's always what you want. Like just right away, you want something, right? And so I'm sitting here in a dream, and here comes Sherry in this dream as vividly as possible. She's coming in, and, and she gives me a hug, and I'm like, oh, it's perfect, exactly what I needed. And I was going to go on and say, like, I bet you miss the kids. Let me tell you about what the kids are doing. And she's like, I don't. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't? She's like, I don't think about the kids. And I'm like, oh, okay. But I get it, you know, but what about me? Surely, surely, right? Surely, you're missing me and thinking about me. And her answer was, I have almost completely forgot you because the glory of God is so great. And I'm sitting here like, what? You know what I mean? Because your natural response is after somebody dies, who's the first person you want to see? What did he reveal inside of me? Right or wrong, I'm just telling you, what he revealed inside of me that the first, that I wanted to see my wife more than I wanted to see my Savior and my God. What did that reveal in me? Maybe I was worshiping the wrong thing at times. And I know, like, that's not what you want to hear, but I'm just telling you it's real. I mean, it's just real. At times, we worship our relationships. We worship our children. We worship, and sometimes that's just identified by what do you want to see most someday, right? And he's really, and again, I know this is hard to hear, but he needs to reveal some of that stuff inside of us, right? Because once we, it's not that, again, it's not that he doesn't want you to experience all those things and see all those things, and that's not, that's not the issue of whether or not you do or don't want to see, but is it in in place of him first. Does that make sense? Right? It's not an issue of whether you want to see all the beauty of heaven and do all these things in heaven or go down these roads and see these people. But before him, that's just a representation, right? Like, I want to go up and I want to hunt, fish, do, hike, you know, go on all these things. Well, again, maybe we worship created things more than we worship our creator. And it's revealed sometimes by what we want most in eternity. And what he's just saying is what you should want most in eternity is me. What you should strive most for on this earth is the worship of me. Right? What you should do most, because it naturally translates, right? Like when we get that fixed in our life and when we go down those roads and we're naturally worshiping here on this earth, What's naturally going to happen in heaven? Have I lost you? Are we, are we past, right? No, all right. Like if you're naturally worshiping here, him, it just naturally translates into his presence, right? We're going to worship him because we've made choices on this earth to worship him above other things, right? 
right? And we need to move into those places. So the worship team is going to come back up. I'm going to give you a couple things to think about. A couple things to ask yourself questions on, right? So here's the first thing. The first thing. What is it in your life where you've decided to be on the throne and take God off, right? Where is it? Now, I'm going to give you some things. This isn't foolproof, right? This isn't foolproof, but I want you to, to think about this. If you want help identifying what's on the throne that shouldn't be, it usually starts with this. Ask yourself this question. What brings you the most stress and anxiety in your life? You know why? Because stress and anxiety are usually caused because you want to be in control and it's out of control. Not always. Again, I'm not making this as a blanket statement, but you know what I mean. A lot of times that's true, right? And then the third thing is, what do you fear the most? Because usually those things, if you ask yourself those questions, a lot of times fear is out of because... I don't know what's going to, I don't know what's going to happen and it's out of control, right? And so you haven't, you haven't landed on this, who's in control in your life? You know what I mean? Like who's sovereign and who is in control because you haven't settled those things in your heart and in your mind that, that you're going to struggle with that, right? And, and we all done this, right? Like raising kids, you know, there's times where kids bring stress and anxiety, yeah, I mean, anybody that's raising kids, like this is the way that it goes. And at some level, right, like, I had to make this decision in my life. Does God love my children more than me? You know what the answer is? Yes. So why wouldn't I give him back to him? He's way better than me. Loves him way more than I will ever do. Give him control. When Cherry was going through all of those, you know, sicknesses and you know on and off and on and off and I'm sitting here like I have to make a decision who's in control who's in control and I had to give it over to him the outcome of what was going to happen was out of my control right and I had to decide is he sovereign or is he not sovereign is he in control or is he not in control? Because it can't be one, you can't be somewhere in the middle. It's one or the other, he is or he isn't. In the beginning of this church, not very many people remember these days, and I'm preaching and there's 20, 30 people here, and I'm like, <laughs> this is a 60,000 square foot building. Is anybody doing the math of whether it works with 20 people in here? There were a lot of temptations to do a lot of things to, to make it better. But the best decision I ever made said, this is your church, it's not mine. I'm not in control of it. I don't know how many people are going to come. I don't know how many people are going to leave. I don't know what's going to happen. At the end of the day, this is your church. You love it more than I do. You wanted it more than me. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to give it to you and I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to show up every week. Whether it's one people, one person or a thousand people. It doesn't make me any difference because it comes down to this. Who is on the throne? And when it's him and he's in control, that brings a peace that surpasses all understanding, right? The second thing that we need to ask ourselves is, is that what are those things that you're worshiping? What are those things in your life that you've put in front of God? What are those things that, and again, it could be easy, easily as identified as when you thought about that, like just think about it again. If you wanted to see that more than you wanted to see God, there might be a chance that you're worshiping that, that you might have put that in place of God. But I think we need to take the time where we process what have become those worthless, because that's what they are, idols in our life. Right, what have been those things that we've been worshiping, that we've been making idols in our life, and we've just figured out that this isn't like, you know, this, this idea of somehow it's God and something else, that it's him and him alone, and that everybody in the presence of God is going to fall down and worship. And if you're struggling making that decision, then get in the presence of God, because he just says, if you ask the presence of God into this place and into your house, your only response, if the presence of God is there, is to fall down and worship. We stand so I can pray for you.
So Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this book. Just really excited, Lord, that you're opening up our eyes in some ways that maybe we just don't see. So Lord, I pray today where we have built our own throne rooms, sat on our own thrones. Lord, I pray today that not only will you take us off of the throne, that you'll destroy it. Never for us to go back again. Lord, I pray that those things are revealed in our lives, Lord, and that we know that you're a jealous God. and You want to be with us, and you want all of us. And so, Lord, I pray that during this last song, Lord, and as we live our everyday life, because it's not just today, we are in your presence always. May our life be a life of worship. May everything we do be a representation of how we worship you. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.
You know, I think if we just take that to heart, like when, you, when you're in the presence of God, it's an awestruck wonder, right? And what else is our response from an awestruck wonder other than to worship, right? To adore the one that you're seeing. And I would just pray that we're a church of that, a people of God that are an awestruck wonder. You know, we've missed sometimes the majesty of God. We've reduced him into something that we can handle and we can be a part of. May we be a church that blows that all up. May we remember that we are called to worship a God in awestruck wonder because you can't contain the majesty and you can't contain the things that he's doing. And so I just pray we be a church made up of people who understand the majesty of God and understand that we are a people who will worship him above everything else. So thanks for being here with us this week. Thanks for joining us online and we'll see you guys next week.